Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show dedicated to policy analysis in international affairs. International development is a broad, multidisciplinary concept focused on efforts to improve the well-being of at-risk populations around the world. Now often, these efforts focus on some combination of poverty and inequality reduction, as well as improved health, education, and job opportunities. When we consider the history of international development efforts, starting with the post-World War II reconstruction up until today, decision makers have been grappling with development issues for nearly 70 years. Now, of course, in that time, the world has gotten increasingly interconnected. And so with the benefit of increased development research, the advent of new technologies, and frankly, a lot of trial and error, we have seen profound shifts in how countries and leaders approach international development. With that in mind, in today's episode, we consider the present and also look to the future as we explore some of the emerging trends in international development. To help us explore these emerging trends, I spoke with Aniket Bhushan, an adjunct research professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and the lead researcher at the Canadian International Development Platform, a policy think tank that works to provide a comprehensive picture of Canada's engagement with developing countries. Aniket, thank you very much for joining us this evening. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, so to get us started, um, I'm hoping you might be able to give us uh, a sense of exactly what the Canadian International Development Platform does. Sure. So the platform was uh, born out of uh, what was formerly called the North-South Institute, which was an international development think tank based here uh, in Ottawa. The institute uh, exists in uh, somewhat of a different form, uh, not as an independent entity, but also at uh, NIPSIA. But the platform started off as a a data project, essentially an internal data project, where um, the institute focused on uh, development policy analysis, primarily in the Canadian domain, but but looking at Canada's footprint, as it were, across the developing world. Um, and the uh, four pillars that it covered um, in terms of the work of the data was foreign assistance, trade, uh, investment, and migration and remittances. And in, in doing this, uh, you know, over the course of, this is pre-open data days, pre-big data, pre-publication of IATI and other standards, uh, we realized we were collecting and we had aggregated and rolled up a lot of information, a lot of data from various departments. And this was kind of done in an ad hoc manner. So it was born out of the idea of A, doing more analysis of it, B, systematizing and standardizing the data, and C, sort of pushing for a better standards, greater transparency and accountability, especially on the foreign assistance side, because we saw a multiplication of uh, different feeds, different sources, and there wasn't any one place that was bringing it together and providing a concise analysis. So what is the then um, the, the link or the importance um, between data and decision-making? Yeah, so, you know, I think um, it's almost trite to say that every new government that comes in talks about doing uh, evidence-based policymaking, um, and it's almost like every government before hadn't been doing evidence-based policymaking or had been doing something different. Um, I mean, I think there's a bit of a balance there. Uh, it's a question of uh, policy 
making and evidence at what level. So uh, there is an importance at an aggregate level in my mind where you want to be able to say at the end of the day to Canadian taxpayers, you know, what their generosity, what their investment, especially in development assistance, is achieving. Uh, that's at an aggregate level. Uh, at a more programmatic level, at a more policy level, you want to be able to at least base what you're looking to do in a tough area like international development on the best available evidence of what works and what doesn't work. And if you think about it, uh, if you only know one side of the coin, which is what you're doing, and don't know the other side of you know what effect it's having, it's very difficult for you to say, well, you know, what is your sort of return profile? Is this is this a worthwhile dollar spent? So I think evidence in in development is is very very crucial and very very critical. I think we've come a long way, especially in the Canadian context, um, in terms of the availability of certain types of evidence and certain types of data. But in other aspects, uh, we're still lagging and 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 behind. Uh, and there's movement to uh, overcome some of that. But I think the resistance lies as much in um, in broader uh, policy and, and politics, uh, to some extent, um, as it does in uh, practical terms of you know how, what is easy to measure, what is measurable, and so forth. How does the um, the CIDP, so the, the mm -hmm. Canadian International Development Platform, how do you bridge or take the data that you collect? Um, how do you get that to decision makers? Do you have a direct bridge, for example, into um, Global Affairs Canada to share? have this conversation? Yeah, so in a sense, our uh, links with global affairs are almost constant. It's, it's nearly constant in the sense of, at the end of the day, <clears throat> you know, the global affairs side, uh, Finance Canada, whether you talk about Export Development Canada, because, you know, the things like export credits in, in the development space and others, um, you know, they're all as much data purveyors. They, they provide the data that we aggregate and roll up and are able to analyze further and, and, and visualize uh, as much as they are uh, an audience for the reflection on the data. So it's a, it's a very much a two-way process. And especially on the data side, I think it's, it's, a, it's a much more embedded sort of two-way process because um, oftentimes we are probably a out of a handful of uh, you know, folks in this space who are very much dealing with the data firsthand. So often what will happen is we'll be the first to pick up if there are errors in the raw data or if there are potential misinterpretations in the raw data. And this might be for you know good reasons. And at least this provides a, a sounding board for folks uh, within the department. So there's that on the on the data side, on the data level. But on the policymaking side, it's it, it's almost even more interesting. When, I, when we started doing this work and when I started doing work in the open data space, um, it was interesting to me to go in and present to folks at Global Affairs who weren't really aware of, at a, again, at a macro level, their own operations, which is something they could have gotten from colleagues in another division or down a hallway or on, a, on another floor. And sometimes it's easier for someone else to be able to do it from the outside and essentially show them their picture of their own programming. So I remember this distinctly in the case of education programming. You know, you have uh, policy folks who are very, very steeped in the small, uh, narrow project or program area or country area that they're they're involved in, um, and it's helpful to see the the forest for the trees, as it were, and take a bigger look mm -hmm. and a bigger picture. And that was initially a big part of our entry point in terms of the policy connection. We'll have more with Anakit Bhushan after a quick break. 
You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. The Agenda 2030 is an agenda aiming at a fair globalization. It's an agenda aiming at not leaving anyone behind, eradicating poverty, and creating conditions for people to trust again in uh, not only political systems, but also in multilateral forms of governance and in international organizations like the UN. That was United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres reaffirming the importance of Agenda 2030, which aims to focus international development efforts on the achievement of 17 sustainable development goals. Now, the adoption of Agenda 2013 by the 193 UN member states and the collective efforts to achieve these holistic sustainable development goals is an example of a current trend in international development efforts, which is something that Anakit and I discussed. So let's talk a little bit about international development mm-hmm. policy, not necessarily at the Canadian level, but just globally. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we have a long history uh, of, of international development policy. I mean, we're talking almost 70 years here, and so inevitably there are trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so if we look at the current situation, um, what in your assessment are some of the larger trends that we're seeing right now in international development policy? So um, that's a big question. Uh, let's uh, try to break it down uh, a little bit further. I think the, 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 the first thing to think about in a bigger global and macro picture is what's actually happening to, let's call it the geography of poverty, poverty slash inequality slash you know deprivation malnutrition whatever you want to however you want to uh, phrase it and I mean there it's hard to argue against there being a, a good news story in in terms of the big macro trends so we know uh, that the Millennium Development Goals in large part had an effect of catalyzing uh, a greater momentum to support development. Uh, we have to remember, and people don't often remember, the historical context. The Millennium Development Goals came about at a time where foreign aid and, and, and development spending uh, amongst the major donor countries was declining. There was austerity. Uh, we think about austerity of the recent years, but there was austerity that was even starker. Some of the largest periods of cuts to the Canadian foreign assistance budget were actually in, in that time, in the mid to late 90s. So the Millennium Development Goals had this effect of regalvanizing and refocusing attention. And one of the ways they did that was by, in a sense, trying to make development a little bit more technocratic than it was before. So the idea of eight goals and pursuing these goals and having targets for their achievement. One of those, obviously, the celebrated target is the halving of uh, extreme poverty. And as you know, in in uh, in broad terms, that goal was achieved. It wasn't only achieved; it was achieved, you know, pre the target 2015 date. But as we know, that achievement is driven very much by a picture that is very uh, dispersed when you look below the surface. So we were just looking at some data earlier today, uh, which we're preparing for uh, um, an analysis that we will be sharing soon, which reflects on the new assistance policy, in fact. Uh, But we wanted to see what was happening to these trends relative to the absolute actual number of poor people. So if you look across regions, almost across the board, not only has global poverty declined, it hasn't halved in all regions. Uh, Clearly, it's more than halved in some, like East Asia. In sub-Saharan Africa, that percentage figure has also declined. 
But the absolute number of people living in extreme poverty is actually higher in 2013 than it was in 1999 right. because of population growth. growth. Yeah. yeah, that's the that's the I suppose the balancing act. Yeah. So then to that point, I, I guess that is it. That would be an excellent example of the need for disaggregated data. Yeah. Right. So if we look globally, yes, maybe poverty is halved, but if you look regionally. There's such a disparity there that speaks to the issue of, you know, what works in one area may not work in another, and we need to be able to adjust our yeah, policy. Yeah, disaggregated data and, and disaggregation in, in, in that form in terms of geography, but there are many forms of, of, of types of, of disaggregation. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the uh, HDR, the Human Development Report, I think in 2014 or 2015, maybe slightly even uh, before that, one of the forms of, in a sense, novel measures was looking at poverty uh, from um, dimensions that are other than just income poverty. So the multidimensional poverty index, the MPI, uh, you know, pioneered by uh, scholars at Oxford, is now a routine part of uh, you know the, the the numbers. But when you look at it from one perspective, that is multidimensional poverty or income poverty, you don't necessarily get the same picture. Right. Uh, and so there's disaggregation of different types and different levels. But generally speaking, the broader macro narrative of declining global poverty is one that you can't really uh, dispute. I think generally most people will agree with it. Where there is some dispute, uh, and I and I have you know written some of, of that myself, is around whether our measures and our bars are too low. So, you know, we were talking about a dollar a day, which became a dollar twenty-five a day extreme poverty, which is now the equivalent of a dollar ninety a day extreme poverty. Is that too low a bar to be thinking against? Um, and then there is further discussion about the trends here on. So, as you know, we have the Sustainable Development Goals, and the similarly celebrated target of the Sustainable Development Goals out to uh, 2030 is the elimination of uh, extreme poverty in, in its entirety. And the best projections show that, uh, in the best case scenario, we'll still be left with 3 to 7% of global uh, uh, population in extreme poverty in the best case scenarios in uh, you know 2030. The really interesting factor uh, uh, within that is the level of concentration of that uh, poverty. And this is, this is part of some work a colleague of mine is doing um, uh, right now. Looking at some of these trends, and I know we're going to talk about it a little bit further, but looking at some of these trends uh, against some of the targets that are in the new international assistance policy um, framework. So the picture we see is one of a very obvious concentration of poverty in what we call the last mile, the hardest part. So extreme concentration in sub-Saharan Africa regionally and in uh, fragile and, and, and conflict-affected states, um, uh, you know, thematically. Mm-hmm. So given given the current environment then um, in which we exist, obviously, you know, you referenced the Millennium Development Goals and the, the their successor, the Sustainable Development Goals. It's no secret that the United Nations plays a critical, if not the most critical role um, in the formation of, of development policy and as a driver of, of trends. Um, is there a space, or, or currently is the space being filled by other actors um, to help drive trends forward in international development policy? So at the broad uh, sort of aggregate level of setting these global agendas, it's a uh, in my view, it's a bit of a circus. Um, I mean, I think I saw this uh, in real time in the uh, 
um, in the effort, especially by folks from the outside, so folks who are not in government, uh, to make a concerted effort to do things differently compared to the way they were done at the time of the uh, MDGs and the Millennium Declaration, which is what the MDGs uh, came from. Um, but what has happened is it's broadened the discussion, it's broadened the tent, maybe at the expense of having a more focused agenda. I mean, certainly you can see that in the proliferation of goals. Um, I don't know what exactly the logic is, but there is some logic that is confirmed and satisfied someone uh, to go from eight Millennium Development Goals to 17 uh, Sustainable Development Goals, even though nowhere of the of all of the eight Millennium Development Goals were achieved. And in right. many contexts, uh, you know, in many, uh, again, sub uh, national, sub-jurisdictional context, uh, trends are heading in the opposite direction, even though in the aggregate uh, they're moving in the right direction. So the logic is a little bit mystifying. I think a lot of the way the Sustainable Development Goals came about has to do with uh, the voices of different partners involved, and in particular the voices of civil society uh, uh, being more involved. And mm. civil society by its nature is is more diffuse, is more... Uh, you know, disparate and in some respects also incoherent. Um, and at least when I look at the Sustainable Development Goals agenda and the 169 targets and indicators that come with it, it certainly looks a lot less coherent uh, from, a, from a purely measurement uh, standpoint. And yet we find donors paying lip service to it all over the world, saying that, you know, their pursuit of their policy frameworks is linked with the achievement of the, of the SDGs. So is greater participation by civil society organizations then, um, do you think that's related to the fact that as we move forward, the world is getting more interconnected, uh, globalization is, is allowing us to have new forms of communication breaking down kind of established bureaucratic barriers? Do you see a, do you see a link there of, of then giving a greater voice to CSOs and other local organizations on the ground? Yeah, I think and I think in part it is it is this kind of perennial question of legitimacy and, and uh, you know, uh, being inside the tent and outside of the tent. And, and you see that in, in most policy domains and most policy discussions, I mean, which is also a form in a way of of internalization. So a lot of the, the discussions that would maybe more on the fringe in civil society are now not so far afield and not uh, so far considered fringe. I mean, I, I, even thinking about a, a feminist assistance policy, I think a few, I, I can imagine, um, you know, a decade or so ago, that would have been thought of as bizarre. And just the fact that the context that we're in today has socialized it up to a point where you know, one doesn't even really seem to think twice uh, mm -hmm. uh, about about it. And again, Canada wasn't the first to, to do this. I mean, Sweden had, has an, had an overtly uh, feminist foreign policy, not just an international assistance policy, but a foreign policy more generally, um, and fit its, its, uh, its international assistance uh, policy pillar into it. And sure enough, I mean, uh, civil society organizations uh, you know, did, ha did, did have a role to play in that. I think that the, the difference, the nuanced difference that I'd like to point out that I don't see enough in the discussions is uh, between the uh, so-called international uh, civil society, the big INGOs who have, uh, you know, large budgets and PR and marketing and lots of um, clout behind them and, and get a lot of support to, to be very powerful advocates versus uh, really civil society in the developing countries. Mm -hmm. that, that, that balance is, is extremely lopsided. The SDGs 
rectified that. They they elevated the voices of uh, of of the ones which were in a sense already empowered, may have been outside of the MDG core before, but they did little to really uh, take into account um, the more you know nuanced differences in in country context and. And I think you can see that with the level of engagement. As countries have gone through the, the development curve and process, as, as, it, as it were, in my view, they've sort of become less and less engaged in these big global uh, processes because they see little to be achieved. I mean, China is not sitting around and thinking about uh, SDGs and uh, 2030 to figure out whether it's going to ban internal combustion engines by 2030. It's going to ban internal combustion engines by 2030 because it thinks that that's a better way to go. Right. Um, and if it's somewhat consistent with one of the pieces of either the climate change agenda or SDGs, then then so be it. I want to talk about um, Canadian development policy mm-hmm. in a second. But, but yeah. first, um, when we talk about international development, international development policy, obviously, one of the main metrics, at least from a from a transactional point of view, is development assistance or foreign aid or yeah. or however you want to phrase it. But uh, that's not the only thing that that the Canadian International Development Platform tracks, correct? Yeah. Um, trade, investment, migration, remittance flows. Those are all things that that you're also um, uh, researching. Mm-hmm. Um, could you could you give us a quick explanation of the importance of 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 all of those different kind of metrics? Sure. I mean, the basic uh, version of the story, uh, which is not without dispute, but the basic version, uh, basic thesis from our point of view has been, if you only look at foreign assistance, increasingly uh, as you, you know, as more countries develop, as more countries graduate out of low income status and so forth, if you only look at foreign aid, you're missing the bigger picture. Uh, I'll use one statistic. In 2000, we had, I think, about 61 or 63 um, uh, officially World Bank classified low-income countries. Currently, that number is 31. So it's not just that we've halved the num- the, the, the rate of global poverty. We've actually halved the number of countries, uh, more than half the number of countries that are officially classified as, as, as low-income. Uh, when we look at the pattern... Uh, of uh, flows. So we we have this report, which is available, and we'll send you uh, a link um, called uh, Responding to the Changing Global Development Context, How Can Canada Deliver? When we look at the pattern across uh, the groups of countries, least developed and low-income countries in one category, lower-middle-income countries in another category, and upper-middle-income countries in another category. Now, these are all developing countries. We see a sharp change in the share foreign assistance, ODA, makes up in their overall financial mix. Uh, I mean, your audience can't see this, but but you can see in the first group of LDCs and LICs, the component of ODA is very significant uh, in, in overall flows. But by the time you get to upper middle income countries as a group, it makes up less than 5 to 6% of, yeah. of overall flows. But the key thing to highlight there is that there are still 25 uh, out of 52 countries classified as either LDCs or LICs in 2015, where ODA made up 70% or more of their entire external financial flows. So it's incredibly important. Uh, But where ODA will be important and where it will continue to stay important will be a smaller and smaller subset of uh, places and countries. So the real question is, if you're a development analyst or if you're in the development policy space, is that the only place you need to keep your attention? Because if it's not, 
then clearly you need to think about what the other drivers and the other flows are. And there, in order of uh, you know largest to smallest, remittances are critical. Um, uh, you know, foreign direct investment is critical. But one thing that we have tended to to look at is also exports. Um, the exports of developing countries, given trade is seen as a route out of poverty, given if you look at most examples of rapid transitions of countries essentially developing uh, within a span of a generation, most of those are congruent with export-led growth. You see the Chinas more recently, but you see that in the Koreas and the Southeast Asian tiger economies uh, before that as well. So if exports are important, then you got to look at it from the perspective of, you know, where are those exports going? A large majority of them are going to, to advanced economies. So I think that's why we look at uh, exports and we look at, uh, at, at Canadian trade. But we do think that there is a story uh, to be told there. So we analyzed... Uh, the relative scale of what the value of imports into Canada, again, I can give you the, the exact year, I don't have it off the top of my uh, mind, but what the value of the total imports into Canada from the poorest country uh, countries was versus the total assistance that Canada mm -hmm. provided. And we found a ratio of about 2x. So imports into Canada from the poorest countries were worth about twice as much as Canadian assistance to, again, these are the poorest countries, to the same poorest group of countries. So in short, if you want to get a complete picture of Canada's engagement with the developing world, uh, you can't restrict yourself to just foreign aid. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast. Recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. Sponsored by the Carleton University Graduate Students Association. Poverty is sexist. Our societies cannot succeed without the full participation and empowerment of women and girls. And by working with the Global Fund to eliminate AIDS, TB, and malaria, we're taking an essential step towards a fair world for women and girls, and indeed, for all of our most vulnerable. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau discussing Canada's commitment to the Global Fund, a partnership organization designed to accelerate the end of AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria as epidemics. Now, Canada is currently realigning its approach to international development with the launch of the Feminist International Assistance Policy earlier this year. Reflecting on the current trends in international development, Anakit and I concluded our conversation discussing how these trends are influencing Canadian international development policy. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about, about the role that Canada plays yeah. in, in international development. Obviously, um, Canada is a member of the G7. It's an influential player. It's an influential donor, perhaps not the most influential donor, but a substantial one nonetheless. Um, certainly an, an interesting time to examine international development policy in Canada, given the recent uh, launch of the Feminist International Assistance Policy in June. Mm -hmm. um, based on your observation, how, how and, 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 and given the trends that we've discussed, mm -hmm. how has Canada um, shifted its development policy in response to some of these trends? Right. So... The feminist international assistance policy 
is in in its potential um a well it's only in its potential uh, up to this point mm-hmm. um in, a, in in its potential it it is you know potentially again very powerful it is potentially a a big change uh before this process landed here so to speak uh there was a process as you know of uh, about a year or maybe more than a year of uh consultations right so one of the things that we did and again this is available on the platform uh to view is through the process since we were also part of some of these consultations pretty much all of the 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 formal events uh organized by the the, the department directly um you know we tracked and we developed a framework to assess whether consultations were material in terms of the their their focus and their change or whether whether they were more um in a sense uh validation so i would say if i am to look at it today where you really have only the potential and 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 not much of the execution cuz maybe it's too early uh for that uh but then you would also wonder you know if it's too early for that you're you're halfway through the term of the government so you really uh going in with a lofty political assumption that you're going to be more than a one term <laughs> government when you take half the time to essentially consult and come up with a new framework so let's take all that at face value and we see that consultations have taken place and you've landed with this um this feminist international assistance policy as the output of that uh we find it a bit telling that you can just compare the input and the output and if you see uh, a reasonably a large change between the two this is basic research methods uh then something that has gone on in the middle is probably meaningful that is whether or not fully associated with that change at least it has caused things to move around now in that parable taking that uh analogy you actually find very little change so if you look at the input of what we went in to consult canadians and our partners with and the output of the policy framework that came out as as a result of that it almost mirrors each other you know with a few tweaks here and there almost exactly and the key themes of of those maybe with the exception of the word feminist mirrors very much uh the uh party platform that the liberals had and came in with which was very very limited as far as what it talked about in the case of development and this is not for want of others trying and trying to influence and so forth so the question is really actualizing the potential so i think the way i see it now is it's really left on folks on the outside to put pressure and use this as an entry point to get the government to maybe see a level of potential that it probably didn't foresee so we did an analysis uh, canada's turn to feminist international assistance by the numbers in june uh, 2017 basically just as the policy came out and it's basically a quantitative analysis to look at a set of the commitments that have been made um look at some of the things that made the headlines like uh uh this idea of 90% or 95% or whatever it is uh that of assistance that would be tar- would be you know feminist in a, in a uh, in a nutshell um you know how does that compare with today's reality no one was really looking at that in the first place and so we concluded that the leap between those things is actually not as big as it seems is using the the measures that the department use, uses we're currently at around 70% that is somewhat feminist or very feminist where we see the potential for the biggest jump 
is in what they call gender-targeted programming. So it is the area which is exclusively gender-focused. And so according to our estimates, to achieve this policy's uh, objectives from a financing standpoint, even if you weren't increasing the budget, you would somehow need to conjure up a 15-fold increase in that gender-targeted assistance to be able to say, yeah, we took uh, the uh, we took the policy at at, uh, at at more than just the word and and delivered and took it to you know uh, up from what is one to two percent of Canada's international assistance right now, which is gender targeted, up to around fifteen uh, percent, which is what you would need to do. So that's a huge leap. It brings about a whole set of opportunities, and in our mind, probably more serious opportunities than than the the, the folks who put the policy together realize. All right. Anakit, uh, I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, but uh, thank you very much for, for coming in, and, and thank you for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at PolicyTalksPod for updates and related content. On behalf of the entire team here at Policy Talks, I'd like to thank the Carleton University Graduate Students Association for sponsoring our podcast. They provide us with the means to bring you the quality content that we do. On top of sponsoring us, they are also a great organization and resource for Carleton students. You can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. Now, of course, this episode was also made possible thanks to the hard work of our production team. Rakia Mohammed, Hamza Haddad, Samran Roy, Kenneth Body, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks.